and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Rin, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, we are well into February now. It feels like summer is not that far off. We're only a month away from the eventing season restarting here in Britain. So I hope that everyone's excited to be moving back towards the meat of the summer competition season. We've got a lot of planning going on at Horse and Hound at the moment around that and our reporters. And it definitely feels like things are starting to ramp up. This week, I'm chatting to event rider Molly Summerland about her win in the five-star at Le Moulin last year and coping with such a big triumph at a young age. You know, there were times where weeks later I'd be at home and I'd just start crying about it. <laughs> I don't understand how something like that has ever happened to someone like me. In our news review, we tackle the Olympic format, new rider weight guidelines and paying for off-road riding. Finally, personal trainer Katie Bleakman is back with more fitness advice. We are going to be talking about strengthening and improving your two-point seat. It's going to make you feel more stable, it's going to make you better balanced as a rider, and it's going to make your riding become more effective. More from Katie later. So, slick on your hoof oil and let's get going. So my guest today on the podcast is a young event rider who made a serious splash last year when she won a five-star at the age of just 23. It is, of course, Molly Summerland. Hi, Molly. Welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's lovely to have you with us. Let us start by talking about that incredible five-star win that you had at Le Moulin last year with Charlie van der Heiden. You made your five-star debut at Poe the year before. You were 10th. And I know you then had quite a stressful winter. You had some yard moves and things going on there. And when you came out of that and started to sort of really look at the 2021 season with Charlie, how was he feeling having run in a five-star the year before and, you know, gearing up for another one? He was feeling great. I actually remember I had entered badminton, which unfortunately couldn't go ahead. Um, I was very nervous to enter it. And then when I'd kind of got the confirmation letter through, I was then very excited um, to then have to reroute and think about actually maybe to go to Germany instead. Um, but with COVID and everything, it was incredibly difficult to work out logistically how to get out there, um, you know, lorry-wise, even all the you know, the new plating and everything that lorries have to have and all the COVID passes that we needed. And that's where Tilly Berent came in. Um, Tilly from Eventing Nation was very good at all of that. <laughs> yeah, so I was going to ask about that because I think it was sort of less than a month before the event that the COVID restrictions changed. The German government brought in that quarantine period outside the UK yeah. for people travelling from here to there. So as I understand it, you approached Tilly Berent, the uh, the journalist at Houghton, and sort of asked her if she would consider going with you and giving you a hand with everything. Is that right? Yeah, my confidence actually probably wasn't particularly high before Houghton. And um, I rang Philip and said how I would really like to, you know, try and be on the Nations Cup team. I just felt that that would give me a bit of a boost, you know, something positive to ride for, to ride for the team. Um, and we we managed to win that with uh, Georgie Spence and Tom McEwen and that kind of just gave me a little bit of a buzz back and I thought no you know I do want to go for it and I was umming and ahhing about whether to withdraw from Le Moulin and enter Bicton it was all really up in the air as to what to do but I just felt that in some ways I you know 
there are times where I'd love more horses and everything like that. But this situation I felt worked in my favour because I knew I was going to have to be away for a long time with the quarantine and things, probably best part of a month, I think it was in the end. Um, but I just thought, why not go for it? You know, he's fit, he's well. I've just had a good prep run here. Um, and yeah, I kind of just mentioned it to Tilly in passing and thought, you know, I'm, a, I'm thinking about doing this, but we're both quite impulsive people actually. And I think when we mentioned it, then we just made it happen between the two of us and got out there in the end. Yeah. So Philip Searle, who you mentioned there, he's sort of in charge of the British Nations Cups teams. So he was able to sort of, or between, between him and selectors and whoever, they were able to put you on that Nations Cup team at Houghton to give you that good run. Was that right? And that was when you sort of thought, right, I really want to make yeah. the Moulin happen. Yeah, I am very fond of Philip and he's he's always been a big support to me. And I think, you know, I said to him, I just feel that, you know, I could ride well for the team. Charlie's in a good place. And that actually it would really help me mentally to have had a really positive run um, before going to either Bipton or Lemoulin. And it did. It just really flipped my mindset around. Um, I'm not saying you always need a good run to do that, but I think when you're questioning yourself a little bit and you maybe don't feel like you're riding as well as you could do sometimes having a a good result like that we did with the team it it just um concretes that in your mind a bit so that at the next event you're just a little bit more positive I suppose yeah for sure um so tell us about that journey that that you and Tilly made and uh, went into quarantine well not quarantine but spent the time outside the UK at the Dutch event rider Tim Lips's yard. Tell us about that journey and, and the time you spent it at Team Lips. It was actually so much fun. It was stressful, but in hindsight, I would go back and I would do it all again. It was just, we just felt like two girls that had no idea what we were doing and just been let loose, like to travel across countries. And um, we had a laugh. We had such a laugh. And the, um, all of the team at Tim's and everything, they were brilliant. And and when um, Tim and Janelle Price got there as well, because that's why they did the quarantine, it was just, it felt like the perfect little bubble to be in to prepare yourself mentally. Um, and I know for Charlie, it really worked because he's a horse that we struggle to get to eat anything. Um, so naturally, when he got to Tim's, he went on hunger strike and he thought he was at a big competition and gradually settled down realized that he was just there for training so actually then by the time he came to move again and go to Lemoulin he was eating well which you know obviously makes a massive difference if he's feeling his best yeah definitely and I suppose in a way it was a kind of almost like being in training camp for uh, for the event it and I was, think yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you did actually go and do one show jumping competition in the Netherlands as well is that right yeah yeah so that was perfect obviously because um, just jumping abroad in those big open outdoor arenas, just the types of jumps, the surface, it's all quite similar over there. And um, we don't have many places over here that would replicate that, I don't think. So we really used that to our advantage and um, it was just great. And it, it felt like, you know, you've got one horse to work each day and then I could watch Tim and Janelle ride and Tim Lips ride and also just enjoy the social side of it. You know, we went into the towns a little bit um obviously still with all our masks on and everything like that but it was strange you know everyone at home was really um I think at the time in England the restrictions were quite strict whereas over in um, that country it was it was a lot more relaxed and when we tested out of you know it meant that we were allowed to leave the property and things 
then um, we did just go like down the road to like the ice cream parlors and try and you know have a nice time whilst we were out there and it was really good fun. It sounds great. Uh, tell us about the event week because Charlie sort of at the start he's a very good dressage horse and I know that you led the dressage but I think you were actually quite surprised that, that the score you had which was a 29 did keep you in the lead right the way through that first phase. Tell us about that. Yeah it was really mixed emotions all week because I I know the horse I'm sat on I know what he's capable of but i I know he'd be capable of a hell of a lot more probably with another rider on him. So I felt that I didn't give him the start to the competition that he was capable of. I let him down a bit, I felt, in the dressage. And I know that that's a very good mark, but he has more to give. You know, he he is a better horse than that. And I felt like I could have done a better job. I wasn't ever thinking so much about the end result. I I wanted to kind of take each phase as it was. And in that phase alone, I felt like I could have shown him off better. Um, I was very pleased for him that he still got the result I thought he deserved and he finished the first day in the lead. But yeah, I actually came out and I thought, sorry, Charlie, I could have could have helped you out a bit more there. <laughs> but it was hot, you know, you, you couldn't really appreciate that on the live stream. It was so hot. I think maybe the time I'd only ever ridden when it was that hot was at Fontainebleau in the Europeans, but... It was like 32, 33 degrees when I was getting on. It was it was boiling for them. And, um, you know, you have to take that into consideration as well. Yeah, it definitely does make a difference when, uh, when it's that warm, for sure. And on to cross-country day, what was that like for you? It was just, it was strange um, not having any British support staff out there. Walking the courses and things, I was having to film um, film it all on my phone and send that to my trainers and... And that was difficult. Um, it's given me a lot of confidence for the future to know that I can be at an event on my own and I can cope. But yeah, to, to, to be in the warm up and things, you had to rely on other riders to kind of give you any feedback. And where Tilly was obviously trying to do her own job of taking photos of the riders and talking to them after their cross country rounds and things, I was getting Charlie ready myself, um, doing his studs and things like that. And my friends were sending me clips from the live stream on my phone whilst I was at the stables so I'd kind of do a few studs stand up watch a clip that they'd sent me and then they'd be like oh god sorry sent them on by accident don't watch that one like someone had a bad fall or something <laughs> oh, no. and then you think okay right don't watch that one and then I'd do a few more studs and because I couldn't I couldn't just leave someone to get him ready and go and get on and so yeah we had to do it like that really it was all a bit of a learning curve definitely and how was the actual ride that you had on the cross country I felt there were parts of it that were you know, probably looked like I was going around a five star. It wasn't picture perfect from start to finish, that's for sure. Um, but we know each other inside out. And when we had a few little like hairy moments, he he never took it personally. He never let it knock his confidence. And there was one point I actually remember the commentary saying, oh, he looks like he's getting a little bit tired. And it, it did feel like that a couple of times. I was thinking, okay, I'm not sure how much I've got left in him. Um, but then I don't know where he finds it from. He just, I'd go through a little wooded section or something and then come out and he'd be, you know, galloping home like a racehorse. And you'd think, oh, okay, he's got a second wind, he's back. <laughs> um, and I very much tried to be led by him in that sense. You know, I knew the fences were big enough and needed jumping. So, yeah, I just had to play a little bit by ear with how he was feeling. But he finished really well. He you know, he didn't seem like he was flagging or anything. You know, he got a second wind 
right before the last couple of fences. So I think he can dig deep and find that inner strength, bless him, <laughs> all the hills that we've done at home have paid off. Yeah, because he's not really a blood type, but um, like I, I no. know you said before that he's got so much heart and the partnership you have, as yeah. you said earlier, you're doing yourself down saying he could do more with a different rider because <laughs> the, the partnership you have with him is is everything. Um, so you went clear inside the time cross country, went into show jumping day in the lead. How were the nerves on that last day? I actually, do you know, of all three days, I was the most nervous on the dressage day. Really, really nervous on dressage day just because... I know what he's capable of and I wanted to do him justice and by the time it came to Sunday morning I just thought well this is brilliant and even if I have a couple down and I finish fifth or something that'll be great you know obviously I would love to win it but I I was never thinking about winning it Um, especially when Christoph Waller going clear before me I felt quite calm um, like I'd accepted that what will be will be and just to ride the best round that I could and it never crossed my mind um, <laughs> that we might jump clear. You know, he does it in his own style. We tapped our way around the show jumping. But, um, it was it was quite surreal. Just an amazing, amazing way to finish. A real fairy tale story. And no one will ever be able to take that away from you, Molly. You know, you will always be a five-star <laughs> winner. And that's an incredible thing to, to have at such a young age. Did it take a yeah. while to, to sink in? It really did. And, you know, there were times where weeks later I'd be at home and I just start crying about it <laughs> and I just yeah I just I don't understand how something like that has ever happened to someone like me and it's just you know it's not possible without without Charlie and without all the support and everyone that puts in all the time and training and behind the scenes and it's just such a massive team effort and it's such a hard sport to put it off on the day in all three phases and so when it does happen it's so special. And just update us on what Charlie has been doing since then. He didn't compete again after Le Moulin last year, perhaps had a small injury, is that right? Yeah, so the whole thing was just a massive roller coaster of emotion, really. I think I actually went to an event not long after at all when I knew, um, you know, Charlie had had his routine scan, he'd come home sound and everything, there was no problems, but I knew that he, he had had that, I think he'd just had that scan and it was kind of, we were told to just wait a minute, um, not to try and think about picking him back up for the autumn. Um, and I was at a competition with another horse and it was, it was hard because people were coming up to me. It was lovely, but people were coming up to me saying, Oh my God, it was amazing. You must be on cloud nine. And all I could think about was that he might have this injury at home. And I just wanted to burst into tears in front of them all, but I couldn't say anything at the time just because, you know, we didn't really know what it was or how to kind of manage going about saying about it. Um, and yeah, it was it was hard um, because you you were you were so happy and grateful you had that result, but then also part of you wanted just to fall into a puddle of tears in front of them and say, actually, it's not quite like that at home at the minute. Yeah, it's a hard thing for a young rider to manage. But that's the realities of the sport, you know. Um, and I'm sure that every top rider has been through that, you know, the top horses having injury or anything. But I felt like emotionally the whole Le Moulin thing was, was hard. I think people think it was amazing and all sunshines and roses and it was, but nothing nothing really prepares you for that. And to go in is what felt like a bit of an underdog, not really on people's radar. 
and then the whole world just kind of blow up in your face in a, in a good way but it it was a lot to to manage yeah and I know that since then you've been working with an agent to help you manage social media and so on and that's really helped you with that side of things how are things looking for Charlie now is he back in work will we be seeing him this season yeah um he's back in school cantering we're just very much taking it slowly he's spent the whole time walking up are massive hills so he does look incredible he probably looks the best he's ever looked um slightly chunky <laughs> looks a bit like a dressage horse but he's yeah he feels amazing in himself and Liz Brown my vet has been so good and so patient and um she never wants to take the risk of you know running before we can walk kind of thing at the minute badminton is still potentially on the cards but also if he isn't going to be fully fighting fit by then, then it you know it really doesn't matter to me. He can just go somewhere else or reroute um, because I'm going to be totally led by all these experts that I've got around me, and he has nothing to prove to me anymore or anyone. So um, you know he owes me nothing. So <laughs> if we get to go together, then that would be amazing. But if not, then that's fine. Yeah, well, we would love to see Charlie at badminton, but of course we'd love to see him somewhere else later in the season if that's the right thing for him. Tell us a little more about yourself and your setup, Molly. Where are you based now? So I'm at Julia Norman's yard. It's in Wiltshire. It's right near Barbary Castle, and I've probably been there now coming up to a year, I would say. And Julia is a, a fellow sort of young five-star rider, competed at, yeah. at the five-star level in Britain a couple of years ago. I remember speaking to her. And how many horses have you got? Um, I've got six at the moment. Just tell us about a couple of those young horses. I know Flo is one I see a lot on social media who looks super impressive. Yeah, I've got some nice ones. Um, I've got Flo owned with Paula and Adrian Cloak. He's eight this time, potentially going to be doing some three-stars, three-star longs. He's a very big horse probably 17-1, so won't be rushed. Um, if it takes him a little bit longer to get to hopefully four-star, then that's fine. Um, but he's very talented and very similar to Stamp to Charlie. And I've also got a now-coming five-year-old uh, that would be a similar type again. They're all quite similar to mine. Um, and he's really exciting, owned by Jane Grover, Ginny Wellings and Ollie Wood. Um, a lovely little syndicate that have come together to secure him for me. And um, also got a stallion at Cornton Stud out of Charlie's full sister. And he will be making an appearance this year to do some four-year-old classes. And then hopefully towards the end of this year, start of next year, um, do some breeding as well, be available for breeding. So that's very exciting. And people can have little Charlie babies. <laughs> <laughs> What's his name, the stallion? Uh, Captain Baloo. Great. Um, and for those who don't know what Molly's stamp of horse is, since we are uh, on the podcast, <laughs> it's not a visual medium. What 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 sort of horse do you go for, Molly? Well, Charlie, Flo and Mojo, my five-year-old, they're all bay, dark black, very beautiful horses with white socks, flashy, um, good moving horses. And um, I think everyone has a type that they click with. I'm happy to ride any type of horse, but it just so happens that's the type of horse that's found me and that I've ended up um, investing in. And um, 
yeah almost <laughs> it's look a little bit similar I do sometimes have to blink when I see them on social media and check the caption to make sure yes. I know <laughs> people, people write past me at shows and they say which one is that one and um, final question Molly I know that um, you're a very good rider on the flat and you I think have benefited from some help from Carl Hester in in the last year or so which uh, our listeners are always fascinated by Carl and want to know more is that right and uh, tell us a little about that Yes, um, I was at Carl's the other day, actually, he's just gone away on holiday, so he's escaped from the cold country at the minute, and Olivia Oakley, my other dressage trainer, was the one that got me in with Carl, so I'm very grateful to her for that, and it is fascinating, and he is busy, so you can't get in with him, you know, weekly, but what you do take away from a lesson, I think, is so much homework that it lasts for months, a couple of months, you know, you go away and you think, right, I've got all of this pile to work on, and you have to flick your way through it all and it would be the same with Pippa Funnel um still try and go to hers I was at hers a few days ago but again she's very busy but you come away with so much homework from the two of them that you feel that it's it's worth making the drive to go to them because it it gives you food for thought at home for well until you are able to go back to them well, lucky to have some great trainers there, Molly. And um, but but definitely your talent and hard work has, has brought you to where you are as well. So congratulations again on that Lemoulin win last year. It's been lovely to, to talk about it again and hear the inside story because I think, as you say, we think it's all sort of rainbows and unicorns. But you know there were parts about that journey and the follow-on to it that were hard as well. So it's really interesting to to hear your honest assessment there. No, I mean I'm very lucky. I've got some very good trainers, but I think I think Julia probably you know didn't really get enough credit there that I should have given her because she um she really picked me up from rock bottom actually and um the setup that I've got at hers now it feels like a family and to be surrounded by people day in day out that have your back want the best for you fill you full of confidence and are just so supportive that makes a massive difference and I would say I'm the happiest I've ever been at Julia's so I am so grateful that I managed to stay at hers because having a support network like that makes a huge difference. Yeah, definitely. Oh, well, that's great to hear, Molly. And we really look forward to seeing you out this season on Charlie and Flo and uh, and your other young horses as well and following your career. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. So I'm here today with all three members of our news team. First of all, our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How are you, Eleanor? Yeah, all good, thank you. Uh, went went to a show at the weekend. The carrot trick worked again uh, in catching my horse and, and we came sixth. And uh, I technically, we definitely came sixth and we'll move swiftly on from how many people were in the class. <laughs> <laughs> no further questions will be asked. <laughs> Moving swiftly onwards, our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. Hi, Lucy, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Pippa. I've been fully into the Winter Olympics this week, um, loving all of that coverage and got Olympic fever six months after I last got Olympic fever. So, um, yeah, really enjoying that. So particularly the um, the figure skating with Camilla Valieva, that was just unbelievable. And watching the uh, Kirsty Muir in the freestyle ski at Big Air as well. Those have been my highlights so far. How about you, Pippa? What have you been up to? 
Well, it's funny you mentioned the Winter Olympics because my husband is actually there, which I, I know we've discussed and he's doing it. He's a, he's an equestrian commentator in normal life, but he's doing a production role out there. So I think I haven't actually, I'm ashamed to admit, watched any sport, but um, I'm getting insight on the fact that there are robots that deliver food in the Olympic Broadcast um, Centre and that sort of thing. So uh, yeah, getting a bit of a different view of the Winter Olympics from where I'm sitting. That is amazing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And we also have with us our senior news writer, Becky Murray what have you been up to Becky? Not a lot I've become very boring in winter because the weather we had snowstorms all weekend so you know I think I've just resigned myself to the fact my horse's winter holiday isn't quite over yet and um, I actually spent the weekend watching rugby so um, <laughs> not very horsey but um, yes we're getting there. Yeah well we're all uh, on sports that aren't horses at the moment although I did do two clinics last week I did a uh, grid work clinic on Thursday evening and a pole work clinic on Saturday so I've been doing a bit of riding as well as uh, hearing about the Winter Olympics too. And Lucy, you've been looking at the Summer Olympics this week. I nearly said the real Olympics, but of course they're both real, <laughs> but the summer one is the one where we have horses. Um, and we keep hearing bits of news about confirmation of equestrian sports staying in the games or requirements for keeping them in the games. To be honest, I'm a bit confused myself trying to keep up with it all. And I quite often email you and say, is this news? Did we already know this? And luckily you are on top of it. So first of all, can you fill us in on where we are in the process with regard to the Paris Games, which are just two years away, 2024? Yes, I can. And like you said, Pippa, I think because it's a shortened a shortened Olympic cycle, obviously, with the postponement of Tokyo and things, and there it's kind of put everything into fast forward. So there's a lot of news about the Olympics around at the moment with looking back what's happened in Tokyo and there's plenty of discussion about what's coming up for Paris. Then, as we've already discussed, we've got the backdrop of the Winter Games happening in Beijing at the moment um, and the International Olympic Committee making decisions beyond that for, for games in the future as well. So I'm going to start with Paris first, as that's the one you've asked about. The qualification route to Paris has been decided. That was decided in November. And that includes the fact that we're going to have teams of three at the Paris Games. But what's not yet been established is the exact format the competition will take within each discipline and nor the specific minimum eligibility requirements which are you know the level of form uh, if you like uh, for combinations to be allowed to take part uh, obviously those are two huge hugely important parts of of the Paris Games so Catherine Narinda who's the FEI Olympic and eventing director was speaking at the eventing risk management seminar uh, back in January she told the forum there that the athlete and officials that were involved in Tokyo were all sent a survey and that there's a deadline of the 15th of February for proposals for Paris to be submitted. Uh, these are then going to be discussed at the Sports Forum, which happens in April, firmed up over the summer and then decided um, later this year at the General Assembly. So it is quite sort of wordy, hefty sporting politics, but it's also really important. In a nutshell, what's happening right now is that stakeholders in the sports are putting forward suggestions for how they think the discipline should run at Paris that's all going to be thrashed out um, in April then it goes backwards and forwards with lots of different forms of input over the summer uh, before it's voted on in November okay I think I've got it yeah. and the International Olympic Committee is asking sports to sort of examine themselves I think is the phrase mm -hmm. to, to to look look at what they're doing and what sort of areas do we have to improve or change what areas are we being asked to consider in how our sports happen so in simple terms the International Olympic Committee has a checklist basically of 
what sports must offer or do to become a part of or remain a part of the Games um, with the sort of big umbrella aim of helping fulfil the goals of the Olympic movement. So these are things from increasing engagement, attracting the best athletes, universality, sustainability. There's a whole big list of them. Um, I think David O'Connor summed it up nicely when he said at the seminar that we really are guests at these games and there's many reasons why it's important to be a part of them but the horse sport doesn't control them in the same way that it can do what it likes with say the world championships or continental championships so we do have to fulfill tick these boxes essentially in order to to stay a part of the olympic movement now for paris uh katrin arinda said that sports are receiving daily pressure from the olympic committee who are of course all in beijing at the winter games and she said that the horse sport has to reduce its complexity most of all its costs and increase universality for the next games if we actually want to stay there Mm. And so we're already in the process of talking about Los Angeles 2028. Where are we in that process? Yes, that's right. So the International Olympic Committee held a major meeting ahead of the opening of the Winter Games. Uh, that's what's called an IOC session, which is quite confusing terminology, but a big meeting basically sums it up. So there it rubber stamped which sports are going to be at the Los Angeles 2028 Games. Now, the good news is that equestrian sport is among them, but the question marks over the likes of modern pentathlon, which of course is not governed by the FEI and some other sports, shows that places in the Olympics, they're not guaranteed. And the criteria set by the International Olympic Committee, they're not empty threats. Again, there was a list of criteria against which sports were marked in order to be on that list for 2028 and youth is going to be one of the major focuses of that games we know that the other point to be really crystal clear on is that again there's no guarantee at this point in time which disciplines are going to be there so while it's good news that equestrian sport is there we don't know yet how how that will be. We can't take it for granted that that will be as we've had in the past, you know, dressage and show jumping and eventing. The decision on the disciplines for all sports is coming in mid-2023 and the actual events within those disciplines is going to be decided after Paris. So again, like I said, the shortened timeframes kind of put all of this into fast forward. Uh, very confusing to be talking about so many different games with one going on in the background at the same time. And I think kind of, the reason this is so important is that being part of the Olympic movement has so many trickle-down effects. Like, it's not just dusty sporting politics, and I know it sounds like that at times, and it, it, it is on the face of it, but under it all, it's like, this is the future of horse sport, and that's why it's really important that the horse world is engaged and gets it right, and, uh, and that the FEI is, is taking this so seriously. Thank you, Lucy. Well, I'm glad you're on top of all these processes and meetings and sessions and can keep us up to date with what's happening. And as you say, it is very important that uh, we get these things right if we want to keep horse sport in the Olympics. Eleanor, we're coming back to a hot topic this time. It's rider weight. What's happened this week? Yeah, so this is always a, a topic of great importance and, and interest. And this is actually in Australia, so it won't affect riders here. But I think it is part of a sort of a, a wider movement. And uh, Equestrian Australia, the National Federation, has introduced a guide. It's not a rule. It's a guide say, stating that the maximum a horse should carry is 20% of its weight. And that includes all tack and equipment. Okay, and I think it's sort of fairly obvious, but what did Equestrian Australia say was the purpose of introducing that guideline? 
It's horse welfare. Um, they've said it's to reinforce Equestrian Australia's commitment for best practice for always working towards the best health, safety and welfare of the horse rider combination. Mm. And I thought it was quite interesting as well that they mentioned sort of being able to support athletes, owners and, and parents and coaches and in, 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 in having conversations around this. This was a guideline that could make those conversations easier by putting something in place. I thought that was quite an interesting one, too. Yeah, because, of course, it, it, it would always be a difficult conversation to have um, and one that that people might not want to have. Um, but, yeah, I would hope that if there is this guideline, then you can say, well, this is, you know, the expected maximum load for a horse, therefore, and hopefully it should be able to start start what might be otherwise be a difficult conversation to the benefit of the horse and rider. Mm. And what sort of reaction has there been to the announcement of this new guideline? The general consensus seems to be that this is a positive step because uh, we have covered and, and other outlets have covered the, the research into the effects of excess rider weight on, on horses. Um, so, yeah, the general consensus is that it's positive and that this should, I mean, World Horse Welfare thought that this might be on the high side, the 20% might be uh, on the high side, but has said it's certainly a step in the right direction. And obviously more research is needed in this area so that we can maybe have some more definitive figures uh, on the ideal weight. We also spoke to um, Amanda Stoddart-West, who is from the Great Yorkshire Show, which of course has, has blazed a real trail for horse welfare with its rider weight guidelines. Um, she said she approved and as did a, we spoke to a former British Show Pony Society judge who has actually judged in Australia as well as um, in the UK and she very much hopes it will also be taken up by showing in Australia because at the moment it's only eventing and dressage because she has seen that there may be an issue in this area out there. Mm. Okay well thank you Eleanor that's a really interesting one. Becky, you've been looking at riders paying for access to off-road hacking this week, and particularly on forestry England-owned land. Tell us, the British Horse Society, what is their position on riders paying for access to land? Well, the BHS thinks there's definitely a place for permits. Um, they provide many riders brilliant access to off-road hacking, and this can be on sort of private farmer's land, for example. And the BHS said this is really valuable, especially when there are still so many awful incidents on the roads. But the BHS also said that it doesn't believe riders should be having to pay when it comes to Forestry England land, especially when walkers and cyclists don't need to pay to access this. And the BHS said this that discriminating against riders and carriage drivers. Mm, okay, that's interesting. So this is sort of publicly owned land that other people have access to for free and, and why should riders not receive the same benefits, I guess, is the, the question. Give us a bit more detail on that Forestry England situation and what the BHS and Forestry England have said about it. So there is some Forestry England land questions can access for free. This is when it's a recorded public right of way. But there are many routes, and certainly in the southeast of England, where riders need to pay for a permit to access that land. And the BHS has been looking into this and has been having some conversations with Forestry England on the topic, with the hope that these permits will be reviewed or even removed in the future. Forestry's, Forestry England's view is the permits help protect the forests, but it has confirmed they are having talks with the BHS. So it will be interesting to see if we might see a change in this in the future. Mm, okay, interesting. Thank you, Becky. And thank you to Lucy and Eleanor for joining us today too.
So now we're going over to Katie Bleakman, an online fitness coach and personal trainer specialising in equestrian athletes. Katie has evented to a high level, winning Team Silver at the Eventing Pony Europeans, and now riders all over the world can benefit from her online coaching programme, Event Rider Fitness. Over to you, Katie. In today's episode, we are going to be talking about strengthening and improving your two-point seat. So your two-point seat is something that we will experience when we are going cross-country or we are possibly out hacking, on the gallops, out hunting. And a two-point position is actually referred to as when you only have two points of contact with the saddle. So when your bum's out the air, weight in your stirrups and you're using your cross-country seat as such. And a lot of you that do jump and uh, go cross-country or do hunter trials, you'll probably also know this as maybe the getting ready for trouble seat so having the ability to have quick reactions on landing hold a really strong lower body position so that you can have that strength there and what we see a lot of the time is this inability to actually be able to stay out of the seat and hold this for a long enough period of time so if you're going cross country and you know at the start of the season you're probably only going to be doing four or five minutes however that's still quite a long amount of time to be isometrically holding this position with your bum out the saddle and really making your lower body work with out relying on your hands to balance you because obviously that's going to really push your weight forward onto the horse's forehand. Obviously if you're out hunting or you're out hacking or you're out going up the gallops or maybe playing polo, again they're all disciplines where we're holding the seat and even if some jumping or uh, fast work isn't something that you do, maybe you're a dressage rider, it's still important you have the ability to be able to hold a strong two-point seat because at the end of the day it's going to make you feel more stable, it's going to make you better balanced as a rider and it's going to make your riding become more effective so you might find that as well as the physical struggle to uh, stay out of the seat and hold that position you might feel a bit unstable when your horse pulls you or you tip forward or you get fatigued very quickly or your back hurts so the solution for most of us to strengthening our two-point seat would be to focus on our lower body and our core strength which probably isn't a surprise to you but your core's role is to maintain posture and then we need the lower body to be able to support that as well so it what you want to focus on is strength these areas off the horse and in turn that's going to help you to improve your stamina and your endurance and your strength throughout your core and your lower body when you are in and also out of the saddle you want to think as well about doing some unilateral work so when we're talking about unilateral work we're talking about single leg or arm exercises so things like single leg bridges um, single leg hip hinges reverse lunges side lunges as humans we're asymmetrical creatures which means we're never going to be a thousand percent symmetrical or even side to side Holding isometric positions as well, so when we're talking about your two-point seat, strengthening the lower body, we can be doing exercises like squats, we can be doing glute bridges, uh, your hip hinges once you have progressed your movement technique and your strength, so things like um, hip hinges with bands, hip hinges using some dumbbells, and then progressing to movements like deadlifts, and those are your compound lower body exercises that are really going to help to build your strength. But when we're thinking about riding specific, we want to think about those isometric positions. So we're holding that static position out of the seat, but it's a quasi-isometric movement, which means that there's movement going on around us holding. So when we're riding, even though we're out the saddle, we're still uh, pushing weight into our heels. There's still movement going on. There's movement through our hands. So one exercise to replicate this that you could do would be something like a squat with a pulse. So you could lower down into a squat in the bottom. You could do three little pulses from your glutes and then come back up to standing. And what that is doing is that's holding that isometric position but teaching you to have dynamic movement in the bottom of that movement and then you're coming back it up. Things like as well plyometric work, so plyometrics are exercises like jump squats, uh, jump lunges, sprinter lunges, they're fine 
fast dynamic movements and what plyometrics do is they condition the body uh, with dynamic resistance that rapidly stretch muscle and then the muscle rapidly shortens and this trains the muscles to not only become stronger but also to become quicker to react and handle fatigue better so especially if you're jumping or you spend a lot of time maybe you ride out racehorses plyometrics should be something that you include in your uh, training program once you have the base level of strength and stability to add these exercises in and resistance is always going to be the best answer when it comes to strengthening and uh, building your strength over time. Scientific evidence has shown us the only way to physically build strength is through progressive overload, which is achieved by either increasing the volume, so the amount of reps or sets that you do, the amount of work done in a session, the intensity, so how hard or how much load you lift in a session, and also the amount of work done within a training session or a program or across a training week. And your program should always be backed by scientific evidence. That's important to remember whatever you do and keep it goal specific. And that's again why sometimes, you know, maybe doing Pilates or just yoga, that's not going to be enough or using a BOSU ball to really, really progress your strength in the long run. And making sure you practice this seat plenty of time at home or in your training as well is important as well because you don't probably go into the two-point seat much more than maybe twice a week, three times a week. Obviously, if you are an event rider and you're riding full-time, then you're probably far stronger in this seat than, say, somebody that hacks out twice a week. But we want to think about the specific adaptation to impose demand principle. This is known as the SED principle, which means specific adaptation to impose demand. So you need to be showing your body to the same demand and the same stress in order to get an adaptation so you can't expect yourself to get better or stronger at a movement or holding the two-point seat if you're just doing it once a week or twice a week or riding now and again so the more you show your body that movement that stress the more it's going to adapt and the stronger you're going to be in that position and the better you're going to be able to handle it so it's really important you think about that said principle and showing your body the movement enough so that you can get a response and an adaptation and making sure as well that we're thinking about improving our reaction speeds so things like when we're landing on drops we need quick cognitive function so we need quick brain function we need quick reactions and improving your um, memory exercise can really help to do that and also help you to handle fatigue one thing that I like to do with clients sometimes is at the end of a session when we're going through more of a finisher based session so that's where we spend the last 10 minutes of the session maybe working on a specific area that needs improvement say like the lower body or uh, working on some arm work and we also add in some conditioning work to get the heart rate up and get a really good metabolic uh, expenditure and response to finish the session and what's a good thing to do here to help you handle fatigue would be to uh, go through a dressage test recite your dressage test you could recite uh, your show jumping round from the weekend before and it will really help you to be able to handle fatigue and get your brain really functioning with your body and at the end of the day that's going to make your reaction time in the seat far quicker and you're going to be ready for that trouble seat and have a much stronger two-point seat in the long run. For any more information on any of the topics that we've discussed today, you can head to my Instagram platform and feel free to DM me or ask for any advice at kkbleakman underscore equestrian PT. Thank you, Katie. Next week, Katie will be back to talk about boosting your riding confidence and our interview will be with international dressage rider, trainer and judge, Isabel Vessels. Thank you for joining us today. See you next time. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.